So when is it acceptable to disobey those in authority? That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a turn, a Bible, turn with us to Acts chapter 4. Last week, Andy shared with us the story of the man who had been crippled uh, in the temple courtyard, and Peter and John heal him, which then leads to uh, a sermon, which is the pattern in the book of Acts, an event followed by a sermon or an explanation. The event and the sermon is so powerful that we're told 5,000 people believe. Now, it's hard to figure out if that's 5,000 more or up to 5,000. But we do know they're just counting men. That's just the way they did it then. So you're easily talking seven, 8,000, maybe more people when you include women and children. So one of the things that's interesting to think about is Roughly two months previous to that, the religious leaders had executed Jesus in order to stop this movement. There was then a fledgling movement of a few people. They thought that would end it. We're just a couple of months later. And now we're talking six, seven, eight thousand people strong. So they arrest Peter and John. They throw them in jail. That's where we pick up the story. Verse five. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name you have done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by his name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone." And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I would have to guess that the night in jail for Peter and John was very difficult. It had only been about two months earlier when this same council sentenced Jesus to be tortured and executed on a cross. They had every reason to believe that would be their fate. So it had to have been a very difficult night. 
The uh, Sanhedrin was the council, the religious council of Israel. Andy reminded us last week they were both the civil and the religious authority in the land, the, the top court in the land. It was made up of 70 people plus the high priest, Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. In our study of the Gospel of John, we were introduced to Annas, who was the former high priest from A.D. uh, 6 to A.D. 15. But most people believe that Annas was still running the show. He was deposed in A.D. 15, but following him were five of his sons, a grandson, and a son-in-law. So Annas is identified as the high priest. Caiaphas, who is officially high priest from AD, 16, or AD 18 to 36, then was the reigning high priest. They gather in a semicircle, which was their typical way to gather, and Peter and John are uh, there in the middle. So they're grilling them. They're asking them questions. Essentially what they're saying is, who gave you permission, authority to do this? So very respectfully, Peter will reply. Now it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So as a side note, because this language gets confusing in the New Testament, It's important to understand, as of Pentecost, the moment somebody trusts Jesus as Savior, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is virtually impossible to be a believer and not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is to be controlled or empowered So these verses aren't saying that the Holy Spirit is coming and going as he did in the Old Covenant. It's just in these moments, Peter is empowered by the Spirit who already dwelt within him in order to deliver the message. So respectfully, he says, just for clarification, are we on trial for a benefit done to this cripple. Because if that's what you're asking, then I'll tell you this, it was in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. You remember that title Nazarene is a put down. It's how the religious leaders referred to him. So he's reminding them this Jesus that you dismissed and put down This one whom you crucified. This is the third time that Peter has reminded them, by the way, this is the one you crucified. Peter is definitely not pulling punches. But God raised him from the dead. He is the name by which this man who had been crippled for 40 years stands before you whole. Then in verse 11, he quotes Psalm 118. This would have been a psalm that was very familiar to these religious leaders. 
they believed that Israel was the stone that was rejected by the Gentiles but would become the cornerstone of God's kingdom. But what Peter tells them is, no, Jesus is the cornerstone and you're the ones who rejected him. And then verse 12, which is a very important verse, is the reminder that there is no other name under heaven among men by which anyone can be saved. It's a very unpopular concept in a pluralistic culture where we want to believe all roads lead to God. But the New Testament couldn't be more clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. There is no other name by which anyone can be saved. Verse 13 Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what the council expected when they invited Peter and John before them. But my guess is seeing how just two months ago, they all fled and hid like cowards. I'm thinking that they're pretty sure they can threaten them and they'll be quiet. So they're quite surprised at the boldness and the confidence of Peter and John. This wasn't what they had expected. They identify them as uneducated and untrained, meaning they weren't trained and educated in the religious schools of the day. But don't misunderstand this. For three and a half years, these men were with Jesus all day, every day. They were extremely well-educated and trained for ministry. The religious council identifies they had been with Jesus, remembering how many times Jesus had confounded them. We're also told that the man who had been healed is standing right there, exhibit A. What are they going to say? which is what the text says, they have no reply. So they usher them out and they talk among themselves. What are we going to do? 
the fact that this miracle occurred is obvious to everyone. There's no way to deny it. What's implied is if they could deny it, they would. But everybody knows it's true. So now what? It's also worth noting that this is only two months after the resurrection. Already three times the religious leaders have been told, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. If there was ever a moment where they were going to prove Jesus didn't rise from the dead and stop this movement, it would be now. The tombs just a short distance up the road. Produce a body and the movement is over. So it's interesting that isn't even a discussion that comes up. They were well aware there was no way to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. So the only option was to bring him back in, threaten him, and hope that they remain quiet. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So they bring Peter and John back and they threaten them. You cannot say the name of Jesus anymore or else. Again, remembering what just happened two months ago. These were not idle threats. But what Peter says back is, you tell me whether you think we should obey your voice or obey God. Now this is a line of reasoning that these religious leaders had used often to explain why they must disobey the laws of Rome. Because when push comes to shove, the law of God supersedes the law of man. So Peter's putting it right back to him. You tell me. Do you think the law of God supersedes the law of man? They threaten him a little bit more and they turn him loose. It is interesting that the text tells us this wasn't about justice. This was about politics. They were well aware they couldn't charge them with anything because the crowd was on their side. The crowd was glorifying God. They had seen a miracle. It wasn't politically astute to charge them. So all they could do is threaten them and release them. Verse 23, when they had been released, 
they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Peter and John are released. They probably go back to this core group and they report everything they've heard. Now, what they're reporting is that the religious council who had tortured and executed Jesus threatened that if we don't stop proclaiming Jesus, we're in big trouble. Again, I would suggest to you these people were terrified. This was not an idle threat. This was real. And they understood that. This was the first real persecution of the church. But from chapter 4 to the end of the book, 28 chapters, there will only be three chapters where there isn't persecution. So immediately they go to prayer. I don't think they went to prayer like, you know, maybe 7 o'clock tonight we should have a little prayer meeting. I think they were utterly terrified. I think they were overwhelmed. I think they were excited. And I think they knew nothing else but to fall on their knees and to pray. It was the mission that drove them to prayer. The first thing they identify is God as the creator God. This is very common throughout the Old Testament that when the writer is wanting to reflect on the bigness of God, They refer to God as the creator God. Andy talked about this last week. No matter what anyone tries, you can't thwart God. You can't stop this. So the first thing they reflect on is this is the creator God of the universe. The second thing they do is go to Psalm 2, which is a psalm about the Gentile kings coming together to rally against God and his Messiah. It's a very familiar psalm to them. If you go back and read the psalm, the text says God looks at them and he laughs. And he scoffs at the idea that these puny kings could defeat the God of the universe. They then remind themselves that Herod tried, Pilate tried, the Gentiles tried, the Jews tried, but you can't stop this. It's very interesting to notice. In this moment, the first thing they do is remind themselves who God is. He's the creator God of the universe. He's the God that can't be defeated. 
and he is a God who has sent us out on a mission. So then they ask, verse 29, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. First request, God, take note. They're threatening us. It's a very interesting request. It's got just in case you didn't know they're threatening to do us in. You know that, don't you? You can just hear the fear in that. They don't ask that the threats go away. What they ask is in light of those threats, and we are scared, give us boldness. Give us confidence to keep proclaiming the name of the Lord. They identify that in this unique period of time under the apostles, it is likely that these signs and wonders, this all starts with the healing of this crippled man. So the signs and wonders are likely to continue, which will create platforms to boldly declare that there is no other name by which people can be saved. I wish this happened today. What happened is God shook the room. I wish when we prayed, God would say, I'm here, shake the building. It was his way of saying, got it. They were filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God, and began to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. It's good to notice this pattern when it keeps saying they're filled with the Spirit. What follows is not that they spoke in tongues. That only happens three times in the entire book of Acts. The consistent message is filled with the Spirit to proclaim Jesus. There's no question at this point in the story, we have a sense that something dramatic is about to happen. But I can assure you that there wasn't one single one of these people that could have possibly imagined what happened next, which we'll look at next week. I want to spend the remainder of the time together going back to our opening question, because that's essentially what this text is about. When is it permissible to disobey those in authority. Peter and John had to make the decision to disobey those in authority in order to obey God. So is it okay as Christians to disobey any 
rule, or law we don't like or disagree with? Of course, the answer to that is no. That would just be chaos. There's lots of laws and rules and requirements that we may not like or agree with. Let's just take the issue of taxes. Do I agree with all the ways my tax money is spent? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I'd go so far as to say some of my tax money is spent on very immoral things. So do I then not pay taxes? Well, of course I do. Jesus himself said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And I guarantee you the Romans used that tax money for some very immoral things. But uniquely in America, we have the opportunity, if we don't like something, to get involved. To be good citizens and work for change. It's not our responsibility as a church to get involved in all these things. It is our responsibility to raise up disciples of Christ. And part of being a Christ follower is being a good, responsible citizen. Our job is to grow good citizens. It's your job to follow your conscience, do what you think you need to do, to get involved as you think you need to get involved, to bring about the changes you think need to take place. But there's also an understanding we aren't all going to see that the same way. We aren't all going to have the same ideas, the same uh, uh, challenges, the same movements. We're not going to get involved the same way. And that's okay. It's kind of like if the destination is South Point, we have lots of ways to get to South Point. Lots of routes, bicycles, cars, walking. We all may see it differently. That's okay. But here's what I would ask. Please, don't spiritualize your cause. Please. I grow weary of people plucking verses out of context to defend their particular cause. It's their way of saying, God is on my side. God agrees with me. Please don't so diminish and devalue the name of Jesus and spiritualize your thing and put Jesus on your particular cause. Jesus isn't a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He is the eternal God of the universe and the Savior of the world. Please don't politicize Jesus. Part of what happens when you do that is you make Jesus very unattractive to the very people we're trying to reach. We move then from things we don't like and want to see changed to what we refer to as civil disobedience, actual disobedience to those in authority over us. So again, when is that permissible? 
Again, I would say, don't spiritualize this. People get really good at spiritualizing these things, that this is part of a slippery slope, it's part of a conspiracy, it's part of this, it's part of that. Therefore, based on this, then I can disobey. So let me give you just a simple, kind of a silly illustration. I own a motorcycle. In Nebraska, there is a helmet law. But what if I believe God wants us to be free? You can't tell me to wear a helmet. Therefore, I have to follow God's law and not wear a helmet. We would all say that's just silly. But there's a lot of that that goes on as people kind of manipulate figuring out why it's okay for them not to surrender to those in authority. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when a very specific law or rule or request asks us, requires us to violate a clear command of God. One of the things that made Martin Luther King Jr. so effective is he was very clear about both the laws of man and how they violated the laws of God. He continually identified these are the laws of man and this is where they violate the laws of God. And what made that so effective is people could look at that and say, that's right. And that's how things changed. That's very different than these vague references to oppression today that really don't accomplish anything. We have a very good example in our text where the religious leaders said to Peter and John, you cannot proclaim the name of Jesus. But Peter and John knew that God had called them to proclaim the name of Jesus. So respectfully, they disobeyed those in authority. Now it's very interesting to stop and think about. Essentially, Acts 4.12, there is no other name by which anyone can be saved. Was the point of conflict for the first persecution of the church 2,000 years ago. I'm going to suggest to you, it is entirely possible that that will be the exact same point of conflict that will begin the persecution of the church in America. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work for a nonprofit organization. But I am suggesting this. I do think it is entirely possible 
that there will come a time when saying that Jesus is the only basis by which people can be saved will be determined to be hate speech and will be made illegal. It will go something like this. You know, that message is really exclusive. And then it creates conflict and that causes people to hate each other, which leads to violence in our communities and makes our streets unsafe. Therefore, I think it would be best if we made that illegal. It will be removed from the media platforms. It will be removed from social media. And it's possible we may even reach a point where it is illegal to make such a statement in a local church. I'm going to go a little further. I think, I'm confident, that if that happens, there will be Christians, there will be churches, and there will be Christian organizations that will simply Roll over and agree. It will go something like this. Well, that is true. And it does make people hate each other. And Jesus is all about love. And that probably is best. But friends, here's the deal. Jesus is the only Hope this world has. And it's our job to say so. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not declaring war. I don't want to fight. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be skillful. We need to be respectful. We need to speak the truth in love. This is not just about getting something said. It's about getting something heard. We want the message of Jesus to be compelling, not repelling. So we're going to have to be skillful in how we do this. But this is the point on which we stand. There is no other name given among men, whereby anyone can be saved. I do have concerns today that many churches and many Christian organizations are getting so caught up in the latest movement, the latest trend, the latest philosophy, the flavor of the day, and little by little, they're drifting away from Jesus, who is the only hope of the world. So imagine metaphorically the crippled man in the story represents all the things that concern us in the world today, all the things that we think need to be addressed and changed. 
The world is filled with thousands of cripples that the government can't change, movements can't change, religion can't change, just like this crippled man, the only hope he had is in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. So it is here we will take our stand. Regardless of what those in authority say, we will not stop proclaiming Jesus. This is how we will dare to be the church. Our Father, we are thankful for the privilege we have to proclaim the name of the only one by which the world can be saved. God, give us boldness, give us courage, give us wisdom to faithfully be the church in a culture that's growing more and more hostile to the truth of the message. Lord, may we be faithful in Jesus' name.